I counted down the bottom 25 of my top 50 favorite performances in live-action theatrical superhero movies. To refresh you on the rules for this list, a character can appear multiple times played by a different actor, but an actor can only appear once, and for a specific film, not his or her entire body of work as a character in a franchise. Time to find out how many of your top picks made my list and how many you managed to guess. Let's dive back in. Maximum Effort. This looks like a job for Captain Logan. It's Morphin Time. Okay, spoiler alert, there are no Power Rangers actors on this list, but R.J. Seiler as Billy in the 2017 movie got close. Number 25, Tom Hiddleston as Loki in The Avengers. My biggest gripe with the Thor movies is that we never spend enough time on the lore and political intrigue of Asgard, but when we do, it's usually centered around Loki, and that world comes alive. Hiddleston created the first truly memorable Marvel villain, a character with many layers. He's not only mischief, he's tragedy, and he's jealousy, and he's pathos, and he's comedy. Loki was all these things in the comics, not a god of pure evil, but one of unpredictability. But Hiddleston made it his own and created a character I can't imagine anybody else playing. His energy and intensity is infectious. Every time he plays the role, Hiddleston is having the time of his life, and he seems to cherish every moment he's playing the character, as if it might be his last. Which is somewhat ironic if he ends up getting his own miniseries on Disney's new streaming service. I'll officially name his performance in Avengers, particularly for his speech about subjugating mankind because we crave subjugation, but this is another one that's hard to peg down a single appearance. He brings the same deviousness and duplicity to the role that John Delancey does to Q in Star Trek, and it's a similar feeling when he shows up. Ooh, a Loki episode! I wonder what he has up his sleeve this time. He's one of the best actors I've seen at playing arrogant and insecure at the same time, and that's quite a gift. Number 24, Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman. I realize not everyone would put Keaton this high on the list if they'd include him at all, but he was my Batman growing up, and I never get tired of his understated, mysterious, and antisocial performance. Tim Burton directed a stiff Batman who was part of the scenery, more a device to build a macabre, noirish world around than a real character. But Keaton plays it as a tortured and lonely man, compelled to fight against the kind of man who killed his parents, who turns out to be the exact man who killed his parents. Keaton's Bruce Wayne is standing on a precipice, with one foot constantly in the same headspace as the Joker, and considering some of the things he does, he might actually be a lot closer to that than we're supposed to believe. This is, after all, a guy who gets the police's approval because he drops his arch-nemesis off a roof to his death right after blowing up a chemical plant with people inside. Keaton is dead serious but totally eccentric, and there's a wild man screaming to get out, a Beetlejuice inside of that reserved deadpan exterior. It's those moments when that guy is trying to break through that make Keaton's performance so unique and why he turned out to be perfect for this version of it, despite how counterintuitive it seemed to fans and the press at the time. Despite the wall Burton puts up between us and our protagonist, there's so much manic personality behind both Batman and Bruce Wayne's masks, like when he smiles at deviously at Bob in the alleyway after he takes out the wild swordsman with a single strike and motions for Bob with a your turn gesture. And of course, the classic, you want to get nuts? speech to the Joker. 
I've always loved the almost mechanical way Keaton moves in the suit. It's unnatural in just the right way. And he completely owns the screen, as he famously says in interviews, lets the suit work for him. In Batman Returns, he seems to lose touch to some degree with what worked so well in that first one. The Madman is so close to the surface there, he feels more like what fans were worried he'd be like in 89, a comedian in the Batsuit. But some of that is because a lot of his actions seem more erratic and make even less sense than they do in the original, so it's not all or even mostly his fault. Keaton was the Batman I emulated growing up, always pushing my upper lip up, trying to create that stern Batman face, and I think his performance, and not just the suit he got to work for him, has a lot to do with starting my lifelong obsession with the character and with superheroes at large. Number 23, Patrick Stewart is Charles Xavier in Logan. Thank God for Logan. I say that for lots of reasons. Not to give too much away for the rest of this list, but it gives me a wonderful excuse to include Patrick Stewart and this high, because prior to that movie, Xavier doesn't really get much to warrant it. Yes, Stewart was the only choice, until McAvoy came along. And yes, his optimism in the face of the eradication of his entire species in Days of Future Past is great, with the we-need-you-to-hope-again speech that brings me nearly to tears every time. But let's face it, Stewart was mostly pretty shafted in the X-Men films up until then, because Xavier's mostly a walking, sorry, rolling ideology, and he's too powerful to keep on the board longer than the middle of the second act. In all three movies. Seriously, it's like Mary Jane getting kidnapped. Can't not do that! And it's not until Logan that Stewart gets to bring out all the acting stops. He does everything he does best for that role, almost as if he wasn't cast until now, because Patrick Stewart was called for, for every single thing that ultra-demanding performance uh, demands. Physical pain, emotional pain, tragedy, confusion, sarcasm, nonsensical rambling, swearing in a really sophisticated accent. These are all things Stewart excels at. See Safe House for my favorite example of that last one. And he finally gets a satisfying but soul-crushing death to make up for the unsatisfying and wrong kind of soul-crushing death he suffered in X3. Does he think it's Wolverine killing him? Or are his powers working well enough to read his mind at that point? And no, it's a scary buzz-cut Logan clone. Freaking gut punch. It's all more than I could ask for. Getting to see Stewart play a Professor X who becomes the antithesis to his own philosophy, the mutant who can't control his powers and becomes unwittingly responsible for the deaths of his friends, heartbreaking. What more could I ask for? And it's great stuff on the page, but it wouldn't be what it is, of course, without Patrick Stewart. There's so much internal conflict in the man. He's becoming the things humans fear when he always had his own insanely powerful powers under control before. And yet he's still holding on to that last shred of hope. But impressively, some of the movie's few big laughs also come from him. It's hands down one of the most powerful performances of Stewart's career, and one of the many things that instantly make Logan one of the greatest superhero films of all time. Number 22, Michael Fassbender is Magneto in X-Men First Class. Speaking of actors playing the two sides of the same ideological coin in X-Men movies, Fassbender absolutely deserves all the love he gets for his turn as a young Eric Lencher in First Class. He's great in Days of Future Past, too, but he's absolutely chilling in his freshman outing. I buy him as the same guy Ian McKellen is playing, but Fassbender brings his own brand of terror and pathos to the role. He plays Magneto like a sympathetic serial killer. He's not a guy who kills just because he gets off on it, 
that comes from a deep-seated hatred of the people who oppressed him and his family during World War II, but he has the same coldness in his eyes of a serial killer. There's a really compelling revenge thriller embedded in First Class within the story of a friendship tragically ruined by the different beliefs and motivations of the two men. Fassbender plays broken beautifully, and yet manages to retain enough humanity to be sympathetic and for the audience to believe the camaraderie he shares with Xavier, even if they're friends for only a couple of weeks before Eric accidentally takes out Charles' legs and everything goes to hell. This stuff really shouldn't work, but at least for the sake of that piece, it does. The joy he brings to the part makes the most haunting moments, like Eric sending the coin through Shaw's brain, that much more painful. I also love the even, almost monotone way he delivers his us-versus-them speeches. And man, does Fassbender have a ridiculous degree of screen presence. McKellen created the blueprint, and then Fassbender took superior material and absolutely perfected what he was doing. Number 21, Brandon Lee as Eric Draven in The Crow. Wow, I'm an idiot. I don't think it ever occurred to me that Eric Draven's name has the word Raven in it until just now. And I probably shouldn't have admitted that. Anyway, Brandon Lee's final posthumous performance is an absolute tour de force. He's totally original, he's completely likable and enrapturing, and despite the gruesome ways in which he kills the sickos responsible for his and his fiancé's murder, I can't help but root for him and get caught up in the joy of his successes. It helps that the universe itself seems to be on his side, as Providence chooses Eric to return to life in order to get his due justice, if you can call it that, on the men who took his life and that of the love of his life. Wow, two characters in a row who are thirsty for revenge, both named Eric. Did not do that on purpose. Lee is an incredibly physical and acrobatic actor, and he owns the screen in a way I think few actors have. He's simultaneously making an edgy rock video and giving a dramatic, passionate performance. Again, joy is the name of the game here. It's a little twisted, but it's also cathartic as the audience vicariously enjoys Draven destroying these monsters who are designed to have no redeeming characteristics, and within this heightened melodrama, totally deserve it. There's a part of all of us that would like to mete out this kind of punishment for that sort of injustice. Heath Ledger will channel Brandon Lee in The Dark Knight in some of his mannerisms and movements, and it's uncanny going back to this film to see how close those performances are in places. A wonderfully tragic effort that ultimately became a real-life tragedy, when Lee was killed on set by an accidental gunshot. It should have been a career-making role, but it's so unique and memorable, it cemented his legacy as a great actor who died just as, likely, he was only beginning to show us what he could do. Number 20, Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach in Watchmen. This is another not especially popular opinion, especially amongst Watchmen purists, but I think what Haley did with Rorschach was absolutely perfect. Not everybody loves the guttural pseudo-Batman voice, but Haley does so much inside that bulky trench coat and that mask to make it distinctly his. He's another extremely physical actor, and it's no wonder he was tapped to play Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake right after. Haley captures exactly what Rorschach was for me on the page. His stubbornness, his ruthlessness, his conviction, and his very dry wit. I love how Haley plays desperate when he lets out feral screams and does whatever it takes to accomplish his goals. His delivery of one of the best lines in the film, I'm not locked in here with you, you're locked in here with me, is one of the most memorable and crowd-pleasing in the film. I also think he has an excellent chemistry with Patrick Wilson as Dan Dryberg, his former partner and estranged friend. 
There's a brilliant intensity to Haley that's made him one of my favorite actors, which she brings for great comedic and terrifying effect is the terror in the stellar Amazon Tick series, which was such a wonderful treat for me, not just because I'm a gigantic Tick fan and that series is like manna from heaven for me, but because I love Haley so much and he's just as brilliant there and insanely versatile. I can read the Watchmen book to enjoy that story. I return to the movie partly for that atmosphere, but mostly for Haley's Rorschach. Number 19, Tom Holland as Peter Parker and Spider-Man in Spider-Man Homecoming. I know I'm going to get some guff for not including either of the other two Spider-Man actors on this list, especially Andrew Garfield, whose name I saw a lot in the comments for the last review. I'll save you the time if you're hoping to hear either of their names. Garfield didn't quite make the cut, though I do love him, particularly in the first Amazing film, and Tobey Maguire does a fine job with what he's given, but he's never been quite right for Spider-Man to me. Sorry, younger folks who grew up with him. Holland is quintessential Peter Parker to me, but of course, he doesn't make the list just because he's good casting. The best way I can describe his performance is effortless. He never feels like a guy reading lines to me. He's absolutely cool as a cucumber. This relatively inexperienced kid shows up, and he just is Peter Parker, with the awkwardness and the big heart and the nervous energy and the conflicted nature, always trying to juggle doing the right thing with whatever he wants for himself. Folks complain that Tony Stark is in too much of the movie, and they don't like that Peter needs him as a mentor. But seeing Holland with that much screen time acting against a towering giant like Robert Downey Jr. really demonstrates his natural talent, not to mention those wonderfully tense scenes he has with Michael Keaton. And how jealous am I of him? The kid does some minor movies, gets cast in the MCU, and suddenly he's acting with Downey and Keaton? Again, not to give too much away, but unsurprisingly, both of these guys are on this list. I love Holland's rapport with Gank. I mean, Ned, Jacob Batalon, and he's excellent at balancing the drama and the humor. We got a sneak peek of what he'd do with Peter in Civil War, and he put a lot of fans at ease. Finally, a young guy who looks the age he's playing. He's 22 as of this recording, but he absolutely does not have that Tom Welling problem, and a guy who can so expertly carry his own movie. I think he's at his best when he's playing vulnerable or totally horrified. The superhero who's completely in over his head is not ready for this and becomes a little kid, afraid to die. He's amazing at that both here, when he gets buried under rubble in the third act, and in Infinity War when he's fading away. He really is the Spider-Man I was waiting for. 18. Ron Perlman is Hellboy. Obviously, Perlman is great in both Hellboy movies, and his performance is totally consistent throughout, so I'll just name the first film because that's where he created the character. But the Golden Army is wonderful. Another perfectly cast actor, it's hard to imagine someone else playing him, which we're about to see in just a few months. Perlman gives Hellboy that Ben Grimm-like gruff lovability. He acts tough, he's got a temper, he's got a million reasons to hate the world, but he's a good guy deep down, and he has the biggest heart of anybody in the movie. Perlman could easily have come off whiny and pathetic, but he's great at saying one thing and showing us something else completely different. Perlman is a big guy, but with that makeup and his posture and presence, he seems even bigger. It's impressive how effortless his performance feels behind layers of prosthetics. He's gotta be uncomfortable, but you'd never know it. It's like if John Leguizamo had to star as the clown for a whole movie. And no, as much as I was impressed with his performance, I wouldn't want to see that either. 
Perlman gets a lot of comedy mileage out of his I-don't-give-a-crap attitude, and I always believe his love for and chemistry with Liz. He's got that brooding but hilarious thing to some degree that David Boreanaz gives us in Angel. Number 17, Josh Brolin as Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. Yes, I'm in the I-don't-buy-Thanos-doesn't-just-double-the-resources-of-the-universe camp, but my issues with Thanos' motivations and creative choices in adapting his character to screen certainly don't take away from Brolin's totally original and masterful performance. It's uncanny how well he manages to create such an ominous, titanic presence out of a fully CG character. I always know I'm looking at a special effect, but it doesn't matter. It feels like a true performance, every bit as much as Gollum in Lord of the Rings, or Caesar in Planet of the Apes, or any number of memorable motion-captured characters played, again, by Andy Serkis. That's one of the great achievements of Marvel. They've taught us that it's possible to get brilliant animated characters in live-action movies that aren't played by Andy Serkis. Maybe they have to be coached by him in some cases, but they don't have to be played by him. Brolin is incredible at disappearing into his roles. You can always tell it's him, but like Vincent D'Onofrio, he'll give you something different every time. He does play a lot of no-nonsense, dry-witted characters, but he's incredibly versatile. Sure, it's easy to disappear when there's an animated facade in front of you, but that looming stature and haunting but almost soothing bass voice is all Brolin. It feels crazy to put an actor who played a character that was somewhat disappointing to me so high on the list, but I can't deny his presence and just how much of a big deal he always feels every time he shows up. Ah, it's Thanos! I love how calm and self-assured Brolin plays it. This isn't my favorite kind of Thanos. I like Smiley taking a sadistic joy out of inflicting pain Thanos, but he's channeling Jason Aaron's Thanos brilliantly with that tortured background that's broken him but leads him to do what he thinks is right, and Brolin's heroic demeanor is what makes him most scary. His scenes with Zoe Saldana are my favorite, a sentence that at one time I could never have imagined myself saying. She was another runner-up. I really wanted to put her on this list for her incredibly sad turn in Infinity War, but I just didn't have enough spots. I'm more than excited to see more of Brolin in the role with whatever Avengers 4 ends up being called. This is coming out so close to the trailer, some of you will know it already, I imagine, when you listen to this, unless even that trailer won't tell us yet what Avengers 4 is called, and hopefully the character is fleshed out enough to make me like the direction this franchise has taken Thanos more to match my love for Brolin's acting. Number 16, Michael B. Jordan as Killmonger in Black Panther. As looming a presence as Brolin's Thanos is, and as wonderfully manipulative and scheming as Hiddleston's Loki is, at the time of this recording, I think Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger is, hands down, the best villain in the MCU. He's one of the best examples of the mirror for the hero, a man who feels entitled to the Wakandan throne, and who wants to control the world rather than find a way to coexist with the rest of modern society, not unlike the Xavier Magneto argument. And I feel bad for the bad hand he's dealt, even as he's murdering his way to Wakanda and scarring himself for every kill. Jordan proves his range as he goes from Creed, a man looking for his place in the world because he didn't have his father there to guide him, and who ends up with freaking Rocky Balboa as his father figure and mentor, to a man raised on the streets, also without a good role model, whose worldview is askew, and he thinks the only answer to oppression is to oppress. A lot of people want to see this guy play Superman. He's got so much range, I think he'd be perfect for that or a character like Zod. Not that I need to see Zod again right now, but... 
I digress. Jordan brings an incredible intensity and arrogance to the role, and he's got so much style, it's hard not to enjoy watching him work, even though what he's trying to create is a fascist state. There's an emptiness in his eyes. Jordan makes me believe this guy, despite his sense of determination, is really lost. Like Magneto, there's a child who had his family taken away and wasn't allowed to really grow up, so he's lashing out at the world as much as he's trying to fix it. The vision quest scene where he speaks to his father, paralleling T'Challa's, where tears stream down his face in that one crucial moment of humanity is powerful, as is his death scene. Jordan plays the role with equal parts dread and dignity. 15. Jack Nicholson as the Joker, Jack Napier in Batman. For the longest time, I couldn't imagine anyone else playing the Joker besides Jack Nicholson. Obviously, we live in a different world now, and his isn't even the definitive live-action version, even in my estimation. But like Keaton's Batman, he was the Joker I most thought about growing up. There were others, Cesar Romero in the Adam West show, Mark Hamill in the animated series, but Jack was my favorite because of the way he moved and his super creepy line readings. That script was filled with great memorable one-liners, but they don't read on paper the way Nicholson read them. A lot of it is counterintuitive even, but it totally works. If you can get his voice out of your head and go back to the script, it reads like a late 70s, early 80s comic book joker like Engelhart might have written. Nicholson brought a dichotomy to the role that wasn't on paper. Oh, he laughs plenty, he smiles a lot, he dances and bounces around, he does embrace the clown, but his best moments are when he's almost frowning against the permanent smile plastered on his face, when he goes into a deep, slightly raspy voice that doesn't remotely go with his getup. It's unnerving, and it makes him feel genuinely unpredictable and scary. There's such a huge range of modes in what he's doing. Nicholson plays it as a perversion of the 1930s gangster. Yes, men of organized crime break the law and they kill people, but there's a code. There are rules. There are lines you don't cross. Joker goes farther than Grissom or any other mob boss would and throws all those rules out the window. Like with Batman, Joker is less of a fleshed-out character and more of a necessary story device, even if it does feel like it's kind of more his movie than Batman's. But like Keaton, Nicholson elevates the material. He's playing a super complex character, even if that's not what ultimately comes across on the screen or was on the page. And he's obviously having the time of his life. The art-improving scene in the Flugelheim Museum, in particular, never gets old, because Nicholson sells it so well, not to mention the hilarious Smilex commercial. So put on a happy face! Number 14, Daphne Keene as Laura X-23 in Logan. I never could have imagined a 12-year-old girl would make it to number 14 on this list, but Daphne Keene turns in such an incredibly intense and emotional performance as Laura, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. That movie really lives or dies by that casting. If I don't buy her, that movie completely falls apart. Logan takes major risks. It's rated R, which limits the audience. It's a Western before it's a superhero movie. It does the typical parental figure passing the torch to a younger generation thing. But the biggest risk it takes is in hanging so much of the dramatic responsibility on the shoulders of a little girl. Kick-Ass does the same thing with Hit Girl, and she makes the list for some of the same reasons, but she has comedy and cuteness to fall back on. Laura isn't ironically violent, she's just ruthless, a kid with no role models and almost no one who's ever cared about her, who has it even harder than Wolverine in some ways. She was built in the lab and became another Weapon X. Even if he doesn't remember much of it, 
and who knows how much of his pre-experiment life Logan remembers by this point. At least he had a life. This girl was the property of a mad science lab from the very beginning and was treated as such. I don't know what personal traumas Daphne Keene is tapping into to become this violated, damaged child. Hopefully none. But it's as convincing as Jackman's fight against his own inner animal. Being the clone of Wolverine, she brilliantly replicates his nature. And she's not all anger. Keene isn't so believable just because she screams and gnashes her teeth a lot. I mean, she's great at that, but there's more to it. She's a real kid, responding like a real kid might if she'd gone through everything Laura has. When she does have those rare moments of deadpan comedy, her timing is masterful. And she just makes me really want her to find her friends and find some peace so badly. She could easily have come off as a really bratty, annoying kid. Had I been James Mangold, I would have been terrified to write this kind of a child into a movie. On paper, it reads like the kind of thing that only works in a Stephen King novel. But Mangold found his girl, and she creates a wholly unique and complex character that makes the genetic experiment fresh again and brings the Weapon X idea to life from a totally other perspective. Too bad the actual Weapon X story has never been brought to screen as successfully as this. Oh, if only Mangold had been around for Origins. Number 13, Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Glass in Unbreakable. Sam Jackson is a no-brainer for a classic, tragic comic book villain. And instead of playing an adaptation of one, he gets to create one from the ground up. Mr. Glass is one of the great movie villains, and he's one of the few original creations for a superhero film that is this memorable. Usually made-up bad guys for original superhero movies are generic, one-note mob bosses, but M. Night Shyamalan built his movie around the bad guy, and he casts a guy with a long history of totally original and eccentric wild cards. Mr. Glass is fascinating on paper. But without an actor like Jackson, he wouldn't have the mad energy and the eclectic personality to match the idea. Mr. Glass watches like a character made for Jackson, like no other man on earth could play him. And you need Jackson to sell this premise and motivation. An extraordinarily brittle villain with a genius intellect who believes there is truth in comic books about people in real life with seemingly supernatural abilities, and who reads comics for research into that. It could have translated into a really silly childish premise, especially in two when superhero movies are still in their infancy, and general audiences aren't taking them as seriously as they will a decade later. Jackson makes Elijah compelling, believable, sympathetic, and then mortifying. I love his mentor-protege dynamic with Bruce Willis, and it's heartbreaking when that friendship takes the traditional comic book direction of arch-nemeses, a twist I should have seen coming on first viewing, but was too enamored with Glass in this relationship to call it. I love Sam Jackson as Nick Fury, and he's especially excellent in Captain America The Winter Soldier, but what he creates in Unbreakable surpasses all of that for me. This video is posting before Glass comes out, and I'm nervous to see if Shyamalan can pull off a solid trilogy of films in this universe, but I can't wait to see Jackson play this part again. Number 12, Chadwick Boseman as T'Challa in The Black Panther. As far as I'm concerned, Black Panther is right up there now with Captain America as the optimistic and responsible role model for children and society at large that Superman is supposed to be, and Boseman embodies that brilliantly. He has an immense amount of power, and it's up to him to use it for the betterment of people and not for his own personal gains, like Superman. But most of his power is political rather than physical. Bozeman plays the benevolent monarch with humility, integrity, 
thoughtfulness, and charm. It would be really easy to play Black Panther as a total stick in the mud, but he's anything but stiff in the role, as the character sometimes seems on the page and in animation. Bozeman understands how heavy that crown would be, and he shows a nervousness about following in his father's footsteps, those of a great king, without losing his natural sense of leadership and confidence. Bozeman is both stalwart and vulnerable, and he takes the role seriously, but finds so much joy in both being the king and the people's champion in the costume. Bozeman has excellent material to play, a wonderful internal conflict about correcting his father's mistakes and going his own way as king without abusing his power like Killmonger will, and that difficult decision between joining the world and staying in isolation. But Bozeman deserves a good deal of the credit for his ability to carry the film and for creating an instantly iconic and relatable hero. Just like Downey made Iron Man a household name, Bozeman has a lot to do with why Black Panther is far from a B-list hero now. The man brings so much grace and style to the character, and he does it so naturally, it feels as much like he was born to play this character as Downey was to play Tony Stark. Number 11, Peter Weller as Alex Murphy in RoboCop. I know I'm in the minority on seeing RoboCop as a bona fide superhero movie, and check out my review of the film for arguments about why I put it squarely in that category. But Weller's machine struggling to retain his humanity is a masterful and nuanced performance, and one of the most memorable of any movie I've analyzed in this series. Far from just a guy marching around in a restrictive suit with a vacant expression on his face, there's constantly so much happening behind Weller's eyes, so much to read past the robotic lines and the computer programming. There's a real man trapped inside the remains of a co-opted police officer who lost most of his body in an altercation with gangsters gone wrong. As we're asked to question how much of the man is left, we discover he's as human as it gets. Weller has an impossible job. To make us believe the soul of Alex Murphy is inside a robot controlled by his prime directives. And when he finally manages to break those commands at the end, it's satisfying because I've been watching a tortured screaming man in Weller's face trying so desperately to escape. Weller is 100% committed to an insanely physically taxing and emotionally challenging role. The latter, not unlike Leonard Nimoy's efforts in communicating Spock's humanity past a persona conditioned to mask it. And he manages to make me care about a character in an ultra-violent, exaggerated, satirical world filled with people who have mostly lost touch with their own humanity. It's a somewhat similar performance to the one Schwarzenegger will give a few years later in Terminator 2, but I'd put Weller's effort even above that, though the movies themselves are, I think, equally brilliant. Most people probably wouldn't include Weller on a list like this, and this high, but I completely fell in love with the character and the portrayal as I wrote about it for Rewind, and he absolutely, I think, deserves to be here. Number 10, James McAvoy as Professor X in X-Men Days of Future Past. I gushed for over an hour about Xavier's arc and McAvoy's brilliant turn as an insecure and broken Professor X who's lost his will to teach and lead in my review for Days of Future Past, so it's no surprise to Rewind listeners that he's this high on the list. I already loved McAvoy in first class, and I think he does an impeccable job at making me believe he's a younger version of the same character played by Patrick Stewart. 
I can't imagine anyone else playing this younger version in just the same way I can't see anyone else but Stuart playing the older one. To the point where I'm desperate to see McAvoy play Captain Picard in a Star Trek The Next Generation reboot. I'm really intrigued to see how well he bridges the gap in Dark Phoenix, now that he's made to look like the older version and it's the 90s, a lot closer now to when the original X-Men film has to take place. Even though we're not given a specific year for that film like we are the prequels, except the not-too-distant future, which is now the much-more-distant past. He brings the same sophistication, unwavering certainty in his philosophy, you know, until Days of Future Past, leadership qualities, and determination that Stewart did, and he actually gets to do stuff with it. McAvoy is on this list specifically for Days of Future Past because his performance resonated with me on such a personal level. We've all doubted our ability to do the thing we're best at sometime in our life, and he's made so much more sympathetic and interesting because we finally see a vulnerable Professor X whose confidence and conviction is shaken, who doesn't have all the answers, and has to fight an uphill battle to find himself again, so he'll come back stronger than before. McAvoy is totally convincing. He captures exactly what the feeling of helplessness and total uncertainty in one's beliefs is like, as he faces a future where he loses his crusade for mutant and human coexistence. He's incredibly genuine, particularly in moments of vulnerability, like when he fails to use Cerebro because something is broken within him. I might have included McAvoy on this list for his portrayal of the Beast and the many varied personalities he so effortlessly jumps between in Split, which now insanely counts as a superhero movie and I'll have to include in this series. But he surpassed my favorite actor of all time in the same role he played, so I've got to include him for Xavier. Number 9, Jim Carrey as Stanley Ipkiss and The Mask in The Mask. In one of his major career-making roles, Jim Carrey creates one of the most memorable and entertaining characters in history, out of a character that's absolutely nothing like what he does with it in the source material. His versatility is uncanny as he jumps back and forth between the cowardly pushover Stanley Ipkiss and the overbearing cartoon character The Mask, the personification of everything Ipkiss would be with no inhibitions or self-doubt who does exactly whatever he wants, whenever he wants, despite the consequences. Everyone in the top ten is here because they're born, I think, to play these roles. But Carrie especially, because he's one of the only people alive who's physically capable of doing what he does, with his body and his face, in shots in that uncomfortable green makeup that are unbelievably often not computer-enhanced at all, and all Jim Carrey with his rubber face and brilliant prosthetics. Carrie's mask is funny, but unpredictable and unsettling, until Ipkiss finds himself at the end and changes the mask from his own worst enemy into a bona fide superhero. At first glance, Ipkiss's character just looks like a typical excuse to get to the silly zany hijinks, but Carrie makes him a likable loser, and he instills him with a real soul. He's pathetic, but it's a relatable pathetic, and we can tell there's a self-confident, proactive guy in there somewhere, something in between Ipkiss and the mask. He doesn't seem like a generic dude the mask somehow comes out of. The mask is the unencumbered self-image of that dude. That's what the script calls for, of course, but Carrie gets it, and makes a point to create that clear connection in both performances, so that's clearly communicated to the audience. Yes, there are the funny Saturday Night Live-esque one-liners, or this being Carrie, maybe I should say in Living Color-esque one-liners, like smoking and 
Look, Ma, I'm roadkill. But Carrie is already bringing the passionate desperation that will serve him in his more dramatic roles, like Truman in The Truman Show. I would go as far as to say that compared to Ace Ventura Pet Detective, released in the same year, this watch is like that kind of a dramatic comedy, where you realize Jim Carrey is using the live-action cartoon shtick that's making him famous to serve a story about self-identity and public personas. Number 8, Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman has, so far, been the biggest pleasant surprise for me in superhero movie history. Gal Gadot is like hitting the basket from half court in the last second of the game to win the championship. It's technically possible, but the odds are insane. If you told me after Batman v Superman she'd be in my top 10 in two years, I'd have called you a crazy person. But here we are. I've gone from wondering if the woman could even act, given that singular expression that seemed plastered to her face throughout BVS, nothing going on behind her eyes, and the way she was used there as a prop before an actress, to being completely moved by her performance. Watching Godot and Wonder Woman is like watching Christopher Reeve all over again, and not because they're similar films in a lot of ways, and not because director Patty Jenkins took so much inspiration from that movie, but because Godot brings the same level of sincerity in her portrayal. She's instantly an iconic figure on the level of Superman. Equal parts vulnerable human and majestic god. And I had been hoping Wonder Woman could someday become that. As much as I'd always wanted her to, I didn't fall in love with the character until Godot. I guess I was waiting for Godot. Her Wonder Woman is brimming with idealism, innocence, an endearing naivety, and an unparalleled compassion. She elevates the story from start to finish. It's a decent script with a lot of good ideas, and it certainly got the right attitude, instilling Wonder Woman with honor and hope and an unquenchable thirst for equality. But Godot makes it feel much closer to a masterpiece than it probably is. There's some speechifying from Ares and uneven pacing toward the end that should bring the movie down. But I'm always with Godot, and I never lose interest in Diana's quest to end the war and bring people together. And I love how crushed Godot plays it when Wonder Woman realizes things aren't as black and white as she thought, even though she's right that there actually is a superpowered god at work helping to perpetuate evil. She has gobs of chemistry with Chris Pine and Steve Trevor, too, and their pairing is nearly as perfect as Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. I had to eat my hat on this one, folks. Godot is not the vacant eye candy I worried she was, with nothing to do and no direction from Snyder in Batman v Superman. In her own film, she's an inspiration, certainly for girls, but for everyone. And I'm glad my kids will have her character to look up to. Number seven, Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne and Batman in Batman Begins. I don't know if even a lot of Nolan Batman fans loved Christian Bale's performance in that first movie as much as they love the approach, the script, and Nolan's directing style. I don't know if they like it as much as I do, but I've always thought his performance was electrifying. Bale isn't playing a superhero. He's playing a real man who's lost his parents and wants so desperately to change the society that led to that happening. I love him in The Dark Knight, too, but this isn't a case of picking the first movie because that's where he invented this version of the character. This is where we get a real character study for Bruce Wayne, which informs his arc in The Dark Knight as the Joker challenges his belief in human beings. I fell in love with the Batman character all over again, and in a new way, partly because of Bale's performance. He perfectly embodies the determination and willpower that makes Bruce capable of the nigh-impossible, which is what also fascinated me as a kid about the character. 
Bale makes me believe his bat phobia, his rage, his guilt, and his stubbornness. He has a unique dynamic with every supporting character that rings true, from his father-son relationship turned rivalry with Ducard, to his real father-son dynamic with Alfred, to his rocky friendship with Rachel and his sacrifice of that romance to stop the corruption in Gotham, to his lighter wink-wink arrangement with Lucius Fox. Bale is impressively committed to all the difficult physical stuff, and the genuine fear and pain he conveys along with Nolan's directing makes his hardest moments visceral and real, particularly when he first gets to the monastery and can barely stand but has to fight Ducard, when he's hanging off the side of the mountain and trying not to break his arm pulling Ducard up, which makes me cringe every time, and that scene I mentioned when I talked about Michael Caine, when he's exposed to Crane's fear toxin and babbling about poison. There's also a subtle charm about Bale. He's fighting and using the monster that wants to come out after his parents' death, but he hasn't lost his sense of humor. And you can see his father in him, who has that same controlled humor and wit, which he used to put people at ease as a doctor and a public figure. Bale himself never has screen time with Bruce Wayne's father, but it feels like he does. It's hard to imagine that something from that performance doesn't leak into Bale's, and I wonder if he saw any of that footage before he did some of his scenes, or if he was there on set for any of that. Bruce uses the same skill to make himself look like an immature playboy, but when he's actually being himself, he comes by that disarming affect naturally, and Bale understands the difference. He created a character I wanted to emulate to some degree in my own life, and elevated a superhero origin story into a real character study about a man fighting the urge to succumb to his desire for vengeance over justice. Six, Chris Evans is Captain America in Captain America the Winter Soldier. Chris Evans, as much as any actor portraying a principled hero, perfectly captures the ideals and principles of the character he's playing without making him too perfect without losing the complexity of a real human being. As I've said before, Evans' Captain America is interesting because selfless as he is, and as natural as that seems to come to him, he's constantly challenged and tempted to go against his beliefs. He's endearing because it's hard. Evans never comes off disingenuous or cartoonish in his embodiment of that idealism. I buy that he believes in truth and freedom to the extreme degree Steve Rogers does, and I believe that he'd jump onto a grenade or step in front of a bullet for any innocent person. He's brilliant at playing the man out of time, and I'm picking his performance in Winter Soldier in particular because of the vast range of emotions he has to play. He's inspiring, but he's also lonely and directionless, and as perfect as he'd like to be as he tries to set the heroic example, he reacts honestly. He is a tragic character here, with just the right amount of brooding so as not to lose the audience's sympathy. Evans plays Steve Rogers like a man in a series of Twilight Zone episodes, as life keeps throwing him seemingly impossible, nightmarish scenarios to test his resolve, from waking up decades after his own time when almost everyone he cared about is dead, to discovering Zola is still alive in a computer, and that he helped Hydra infiltrate S.H.I.E.L.D. for all these years, to the shock of finding out that his best friend is still alive and being used as a programmed assassin. We see Steve's deep feelings about all these things, the inner turmoil that bubbles to the surface, even as he continues to fight for what he believes in. It's a great example of feeling versus acting on those feelings, and I love how Evans handles the public persona versus the complicated man with conflicting emotions. After he played Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four movies, it was difficult for me to see him in this role. 
Now I can't imagine anybody else. And his earlier career feels like a million years ago. Back when I thought of him as mostly a comedic actor who was best at playing narcissistic pretty boys. Ironic that in these movies, he's the opposite of that, and he's constantly finding himself at loggerheads with Tony Stark. Who is that guy? But way more complex and a lot more productive. Evans makes me believe not only that he is the selfless hero he tries to be, but that it's possible for anyone to be like him if they're determined enough. Number five, Ryan Reynolds as Wade Wilson and Deadpool in the first Deadpool film. Ryan Reynolds' dedication to the Deadpool role, both in getting the thing made in the first place and in bringing that character to life as straight off the page as possible, is legendary. He's this high on the list because not only is perfect casting an understatement, since his humor and personality is so uncannily close to Wade Wilson's in the first place, but because his balance of comedy and drama is unparalleled. A lot of fans saw the movie to laugh, but Reynolds takes the material so seriously, he makes sure there's a lot more to it than that. And this is a rare instance where we can give the actor himself a lot more credit than normal for the direction the character has taken on the page, because he has so much creative influence on the story and characterization itself. Reynolds has what should be an impossible job, but he knows how rare an opportunity it is to make a movie about a character the studio didn't initially believe in. He takes nothing for granted, and he gives every aspect his absolute all. He's hilarious, but he also brings so much pain, anguish, and legitimate heart to the role. He can make me cringe as much as he can make me laugh by the joy he takes in getting revenge on people who have done him wrong, but also in the way he plays those horrible things being done to him. The one-liners are easy. What he does in the torture tank that mutilates him and gives him his powers, that stuff is hard. It's also impressive how unrestricted his performance feels in the costume. You'd think a full face mask would make it difficult for all that Jim Carrey-level expressiveness to shine through, but it doesn't. Yeah, the CGI has helped, but so does the very deliberate and exaggerated way Reynolds moves in the suit. His relationship with Vanessa, Marina Baccarin, is one of the best on-screen romances in superhero movies, and that was the thing that most surprised me on first viewing. It's as good a tragic love story as it is a revenge thriller, and it's because those two have a totally unique dynamic in the language together that, raunchy as it is, I totally fell in love with them. He's obviously just as great in the sequel, but Reynolds' best dramatic stuff is in the original, and what he created there was nothing short of obscene magic. Number four, Hugh Jackman is Logan in Logan. I've always loved Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, despite the fact that he's way bigger and taller than his comic book counterpart. And although he'd still be pretty high on this list, probably for X2, Logan shoots him all the way to the final four, in a nail-biting performance that I think might have earned him an Oscar nod if only he were playing a character who didn't have knives in his hands and a healing factor. In Logan, Jackman finally gets to explore the animal nature and the humanity inherent in Logan in the way he always wanted to. He has a constant, palpable frustration that sometimes turns into rage, and no matter how much he resists helping Laura and stubbornly tries not to be the hero, he never comes off as a horrible person. I never wonder why I'm supposed to care about him. I love the constant tension in him as he tries to lay low and give up his life of violence, partly because he thinks his life is basically over and Xavier's dream is dead. But his conscience gnaws at him because his blood relation, genetically engineered though she may be, is going through the same things he has and she needs him. Jackman, as he has before, gets some comedy mileage out of that irritation, and uncensored, Logan is finally doing and saying all the things you'd think he'd do and say in a situation 
like this. He has a brilliant rapport with Daphne Keen, and I'm so invested in that relationship that Logan's death isn't so sad because I've been following this character on screen for almost 20 years. It's because this little girl is losing her father. Jackman goes all in to make his send-off the best singular piece it can be, and everything he's done well with the role before, he takes to the nth degree. He's chilling when he loses it on his clone after Xavier's death, and I'm especially impressed with how Jackman plays his falling apart when he has to take care of this little girl and he's completely spent. It's funny when he goes nuts on the truck after it breaks down, but it's a nervous kind of comedy. He's hit rock bottom, and he just doesn't know what else to do. There are echoes of his scenes with Rogue in the first two movies here. My favorite Jackman scenes in anything are always his reluctance to help children. He plays that a lot. He's great at it in Real Steel, too. I wish Roger Ebert had been able to see this movie. I think it would have changed his mind about the character, who, understandably, after X-Men Origins, he said he wouldn't walk across the street to shake hands with. It's the kind of performance I would want to go out on, and I think Jackman was smart to retire the character after this. These last three are going to be really obvious, I imagine, for most of you, and I've raved so much about these performances in the past, I doubt if I have a lot new to say. This is Hall of Fame stuff. You guys already know why I love these guys. My number three is Robert Downey Jr. for Tony Stark in... Jeez, this is hard. Uh, Age of Ultron, Iron Man 3, is Iron Man 3 his best performance? I'll go with that. We all know why he's perfect for Tony Stark, how much of that character is already in him personally, and how wonderfully charismatic, self-absorbed, but ultimately deeply compassionate he comes to realize he is. He's a kind of superhero we'd never really seen on screen before, the man who seems to only care about himself and who needs to be a hero as much to find his own humanity as he does to clean up his own messes which he finds himself doing constantly. Downey is great at playing self-destructive but trying to change, and by Iron Man 3, he becomes as vulnerable and uncertain as we ever see him. I'm picking that particular performance because of the gamut of modes Downey has to play all at once. He's still got that narcissism, but now he's terrified and facing massive personal anxiety. And he plays it like the end of the world because Tony could never imagine he'd be hit with crippling self-doubt. I find that I'm most impressed with Downey when he's playing absolute petrified or being totally blindsided because he plays it almost like a space alien discovering regular everyday human emotions for the first time. I like the wonder he finds at some real self-discovery and the way he begins to mature as he acts as a mentor for a child. More broadly, Downey is one of the world's greatest improv actors. Some of his best lines are things he came up with outside of the script, and even though I'm naming him for Iron Man 3, I would be remiss if I didn't mention how much credit should go to him for turning Iron Man into one of the most popular superheroes of all time, and a character that helped change the way regular moviegoers see this genre as he worked with an unfinished script and molded Stark as he and Favreau went along in the first one. He's a towering figure on the screen that owns nearly every scene he's in, in every performance. And the most impressive thing about him is that he continues to keep me captivated and care about what happens to him, despite how slowly the character learns anything. 
Number two, Heath Ledger is the Joker in The Dark Knight, the only actor to win an Oscar for a superhero film role, posthumously, and I don't think he would have won it if he hadn't died, but his performance was of course deserving of it, and worthy of the continued praise, adoration, and influence he still has a decade later. The Dark Knight is one of those rare films that I think completely lives up to the hype. The film world, not just Batman fans, treated it like the second coming of Christ, and for superhero movies it absolutely was. We'll get to to the first coming of Christ in a minute. Ledger, of course, had a lot to do with why the film was such a phenomenon. What's really impressive about that, to me, is that he had to win us all over. A lot of people, including myself, were trepidatious about early publicity photos and then the trailers. The Joker looked like a crazy hobo with badly applied makeup, just a dirty, creepy homeless guy that was supposed to somehow be a foil for Batman. It looked like it was different just for the sake of being different. You know, like Leto's Joker absolutely would be in Suicide Squad. Instead, it was a master stroke, something brand new, but that was still totally recognizable. Ledger's Joker is a complete wild card. He plays him with a deliberate sense of mystery and misdirection. This guy probably knows where he comes from, but he won't tell us. And despite that total lack of background, he feels like a fully realized person. I totally buy that he got to his terrifying philosophy that human beings are, at their core, animals with no innate sense of decency, even though I have no idea how he arrived there. Ledger doesn't seem to pretend to know which of his three conflicting backstories is the right one, if any of them are. He plays it like he himself knows. Ledger totally transforms himself until there is no trace of the actor there at all. It could have been nothing but a slasher villain, a serial killer who laughs a lot, but he's the only one having any fun. As scary as he is, he makes me laugh. And then I question myself for finding his sadistic humor funny. Through his performance, he makes the audience experience, to a small degree, what he's trying to teach Batman. Maybe we're all as civilized as we are just because it's convenient. If I'm laughing at things like the pencil trick or the Joker blowing up a hospital, even in a fictional setting, is it possible the side of me that likes that kind of perverse humor could be brought out as far to the fore as the Joker allows his dark side to go? Ledger gives the Joker so many different layers, and somehow they all feel consistent. Whenever he's on screen, he's printing cinematic gold. It's all classic now. It's all iconic. Not a second wasted. Not a frame that's not special in some way. Some people took the homaging and the emulation too far, but there's a reason that so many people were dressing up in Joker costumes and doing Ledger impressions after the film was released. Ledger changed things, and people might be doing that forever. He came close to creating a brand new archetype, there was nothing precisely like that character before. The nihilistic philosophy is fascinating, but the way Ledger packages it is undeniably original. Before I reveal my number one, like it's really a reveal, I'm going to rip off Watch Mojo and throw out a few runners-up. It was impossible to get everyone on this list I really wanted to talk about, but sacrifices had to be made. So here are a few more that were certainly worthy to be put here, but that I didn't quite have room for. I mentioned a couple earlier, here are some others. I really liked Ray Fisher as Cyborg in Justice League. The movie is a bizarre hodgepodge salvage operation, but he stood out and I think he could hold his own in a standalone movie. And this is coming from a guy who never likes Cyborg in the Justice League. Margot Kidder, of course, is Lois Lane in Superman, and there may be some special circle of superhero movie hell for leaving her out. Rebecca Romjan as the original Mystique, especially in X2. She does a lot with a little, both in dialogue and in um, dress, and she has a lot of screen presence for such an underdeveloped role. 
underdeveloped at the time anyway. Chris Pratt as Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy, another really good balancing act of drama and comedy and a performance that resonated with me a lot personally. The super creepy and bizarre Peter Stormare is the devil in Constantine, and Jean-Philip Law is the mute but wild-eyed Diabolique in Danger Diabolic. And my number one, of course, is Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent and Superman in the original 1978 Richard Donner Superman film. Even after decades now of superhero movies and a lot of truly great films in the genre in just the last 10 years, I can't help but put Christopher Reeve right at the top. He's the architect of all of this. He didn't just make us believe a man could fly, he made us believe superheroes weren't just for kids. It took a long time for the industry to catch up to what Donner was doing in mass. But in 1978, he and Christopher Reeve were pioneers, making a movie about a guy flying around in a cape that wasn't a throwaway kiddie story, but an epic about a godlike American immigrant with impossible abilities who sets the example for the world rather than looking for glory or power. You need a guy who seems both larger than life and down to earth, majestic and godlike, yet warm and personable. Reeves' genius is in his ability to play those contradictions like they're ketchup and mustard, like they just go together. Like Evans' Captain America, Reeve comes across as a human being with the weight of the world on his shoulders, not an unbelievable model of perfection. I have big issues with the turning the world backward thing in the third act, but I like that Superman is fallible, that like any of us, he's tempted to use his powers because of his own emotional attachments, like he does to save Lois. He tries to be totally selfless, and he usually succeeds, but he's not totally patient and totally kind all the time. He can feel guilt, he can feel irritation, and he gets angry. That primal scream Reeve does is my favorite moment in the film because it feels sincere and it's disturbing. What if Superman, with all those powers, couldn't control himself? We see the answer in Superman 3, but it's a big joke and it does degenerate into a goofy cartoon. In every subplot. If you've not seen that, I would steer clear. Reeve himself never loses what makes him so quintessentially Superman, even in the bad ones. I really like his wrestling with whether he wants to sacrifice being Superman for Lois and Superman 2, not to mention his interactions with Zod, but of course, he gets the number one spot for his first effort, where he makes the character relevant again and redefines him for a whole generation. And there it is, finally, my top 50 performances in superhero movies spanning five different decades. I've wanted to do this list for a long time, but I'm glad I waited. This would have been a lot different even a year ago, especially thanks to Black Panther and Logan. There are at least six performances that couldn't have been included before last year. I wonder what performances we'll see next year that I'll wish I could have included. As I said in part one, I'd like to eventually do the same thing with television actors and maybe even voice actors, but that'll be down the road. For now, we're going to get back to movie reviews. I'm not prepared to reveal the subject for next time, but I'm doing something very special for the Christmas holiday, and I think you're going to like it. If you'd like to see these reviews three days early, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash geekvolution. Just $2 a month gets you that perk, as well as Geekvolution After Dark, our twice-monthly uncensored talk show starring me and Eric talking about all kinds of stuff we wouldn't necessarily bring up on the channel for a full hour. You'll also get early episodes of Morphin Mania, our year-long Power Rangers commentary series, which we've already recorded a whole month's worth of episodes so far, and which officially begins in January. You can also check those out live 
live Wednesday and Friday nights at 9.30 Central Time. For $50, you can request a movie to be reviewed either on Superhero Rewind or Science Fiction Rewind. I am a little backed up on those right now, but I will get to all of them eventually. And at the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer, and I will thank you personally at the end of every Rewind. And let's do that now, shall we? Thanks a ton, Patreon producers. You guys do so much to keep this thing going. Thanks to Dylan Muschiello, Jackson Rasco, Nick Manna, Eamon Singleton, Cletus Winslow, Remy LeBlanc, Derek Jacob, The Day Ghost, Michael Gulick, Magpies Nest Productions, Kareem Roberts, Lot 10 Underground, Michael Mark Micheletti, Carl Maxey, Dimitri J., John Johnson, Jacob Schneider, Nathan Handford, Aram Zangana, Joey Crouch, Sartage Govind Singh, and Ethan. Thanks also to Gui D, Caleb, Malik Myers, Lone Wolf Jedi of Gotham, Chewbacca's Lover, David Crabtree, Simeon Scott, Justin Hayes, Marie Flowers, Clark Whitfield, Ian McKee, and Jeffrey Patron. And thanks, of course, to all of our patrons at every tier for helping us to keep everything going that we do here at Geekvolution. And you guys are wonderful for listening. I'm Captain Logan, and I'll return again with a mystery review in a couple weeks. Bye.